So welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Each and every week, I talk to treasurers about how they've built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. This week's show, I'm joined by Gerard Tyler, the group treasurer at Urenco Group. Founded in 1970, Urenco is the international supplier of enrichment services and fuel cycle products with a head office post based just outside of London, know, know Gerard for a number of years, and he can. I'll get him to explain a bit more about Yorenko, actually, because he, he describes it a bit better than I do. But actually, Gerard's got a long, deep, rich history within Treasury, and we were just talking before the show that he's gone in, he loves a bit of troubleshooting, going into more distressed businesses, and then more recently, come into sort of more businesses with a bit more of a cash-laden sort of, you know, way of working sort of thing. He'll explain the difference of what the difference is with when you're up against the wall and when then and it's actually a little bit more, a little bit different, actually, in the different ethos. But let's go back, Gerard. Maybe you could take us back to how you first ever encountered, you know, finance and thought that's a career view, and then discovered Treasury a number of years ago. Now, over to you, sir. Great. Well, good morning, Mike, and morning. thank you for inviting me on your show. So, way, way back, my degree was engineering science, and I, I took economics papers as my option instead of doing mechanical engineering or electrical engineering. I took economics and found I, I quite like that, and ended up becoming a chartered accountant with a firm forerunner of Ernst and Ernst and Young. And then, when I qualified, like many others, I kind of take stock, what was I going to do next? And I'd spent quite a bit of time auditing banks in the city. A stock taking a gold vault was quite an intriguing thing to do, but also looking at bond market, bond trading arm of one of the banks. And I found I quite liked the technical products, but I didn't really want to go into to work for a bank. I thought there was a lot of talent had gone into the city and I couldn't see myself being an internal auditor in a bank for the rest of my days. So I then happened across a treasury accounting role at Grand Metropolitan, which was a forerunner of Diageo, which incorporated the kind of technical interest in the financial products, but in a real world sort of business that was sort of trading with real customers and, and activities. So it sort of fitted the bill quite well with the technical complexity, but also the real commercial drive in the business. So I spent a couple of years at Grand Metropolitan. It was a time when treasury was evolving. And you know, back then we were one of the first companies to do a series of swaps of, of some debt using ISDA, master agreements, which were only just coming in. So we've, we've gone a long way as an industry since since then. It makes me makes me sound very ancient, but I'm, I'm sure I'm not really. But that was all the uh, relatively early days of like the Association of Treasurers as well. So when I was coming into it shortly after yeah. that, there was sort of the professionalization of treasury, if you like. It was this accidental area, and then it sort of became a real profession that you know have been for many years but yeah. it suddenly evolved didn't it? it it was and I, I worked with colleagues then who reminded me that it wasn't that many years since exchange controls had been lifted in the UK so it's yeah. difficult to remember yeah. now but in the 1970s and before you know it wasn't possible just to go and do a deal and and buy foreign exchange as you can today and Treasury, had to go and get a license from the Bank of England to do all of that. So I, that wasn't my era, but there were yeah. I had colleagues who had experience of that. So we, it's easy to forget how open the markets are today. So after a couple of years at um, Grand Met, I moved on to to Dunhill Holdings, which was the luxury goods brand. Again, an area that was probably relatively underdeveloped or un, unknown as an industry sector. But that was a fascinating business. We. We had a small treasury team. We held quite a lot of cash, which we were investing at interest rates as high as 15%, which is an era that's long gone. But also currency hedging was really important to the business. We bought most of our sort of luxury goods, pens and um, suitcases and, and clothing in continental Europe, so Swiss francs, 
Deutschmarks and Spanish pesetas and sold principally to Japanese business travelers who buy these sort of these goods in duty free and then take them back to as you know, business gifts to their colleagues and, and families when they got back from their travels. So the real the, st- the relative strength of the yen was incredibly important to the company, even though the cash came through, say, Singapore dollars or, or US dollars in duty free shops around the world. But that currency hedging was so important to the to the business because we really needed to sort of protect the whole margin and yeah, in, in the a fashion list. industry of yeah. buying forward a couple of years. That was the cycle at the time. So it was important to so hedging and the treasury activities were really key to the business. So fascinating to be and, uh, and being inherently nosy about how businesses work and how what goes on when you sit in the treasury department like that. There's not many, not much happens in the business without some impact coming through and you can see see how the business is trading and how it's developing. Yeah. So I had a, several years there, then changed tra- track a bit. I went to BET, which was a massive conglomerate. It had focused on business services and they had acquired through the, the 1980s a huge number of businesses, some of which competed against each other and hadn't really been, con- hadn't really been consolidated together. They then crashed and had several profit warnings in a row and a complete change of management. And I, I came in as the the management team was changing. They had sort of dismissed almost all the treasury department along with many of the other people in the finance department. So we really started from scratch. Huge emphasis on forecasting cash because the business had almost run out of money. It had accounting profits because they were very good at sort of magicking those from the air. But the, the real key thing was sort of generating the cash in the businesses. And that meant actually going out to a lot of the operating units and really getting the helping to get the ethos of cash. How do we improve working capital and real, real focus across the business, even if and we had cash profit forecasts that were still declining. Yeah. But the message coming out from the center was if you can't get the profit, at least get the cash. <laughs> Do whatever um, you can. And pretty much whatever you could, although there were, uh, and the bonus schemes for management were, were targeted on cash, although there were, it was an instance of the, the management of one of the subsidiaries, which wasn't in the UK, uh, losing their jobs between the year end and getting the bonus because they had passed on making the year end uh, payroll payments to their staff. They were so keen to preserve the cash. That was considered to, to be on the line. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, holding up our customer payments and think, or su- supplier payments was definitely part of the and optimizing working capital, yeah, yeah. selling assets to, to generate cash. So that environment is a great learning curve and the power, the power and value of really good forecasts. And we spent so much time in the treasury making sure that we'd, we'd got forecasts that we could rely on. Really, really important. Yeah, and then you, you know, you got into this sort of again. Well, this will, this is a theme here. You know, cash strap businesses, distressed, interesting work. Why, why did that interest you so much? And then obviously influence your next couple of moves, sort of thing. Yeah, well, I think you can really make a difference, and can't underestimate how important really good cash forecasts are to to treasury management and actually business management. And I'll tell you about one one of the places I worked a bit later, but yeah. they basically ran out of money, and when that happens everything stops. So, you know, when a business is doing well and it's ticking along, people can get complacent on cash, but you need to keep that sort of sort of discipline in, in place because the, the world can turn quite quickly. And therefore, you know, that, that cash discipline, the focus on generating real money rather than accounting is ever so important. So then I guess sort of going on from, from my time at uh, BET, I went to APV, which was a small and relatively small engineering group, turnover of about a billion pounds, but it had briefly been a bit of a star of the FTSE. It had, had risen as sort of one of 
through some acquisitions, but it actually uh, and was actually a very, very international business. And this was the time that Eastern Europe was opening up for Western trade. And APV's business was engineering. We supplied process equipment and plant for various industries, but things like food processing and dairy industry, brewing, pharmaceuticals. And we used, because we couldn't trust some of the customers that we were dealing with, particularly in Eastern Europe, we, were, we had a program of using export finance insurance or, or guarantees to port our sales into various developing markets. So that was quite a different different thing, thing that took a lot. We were quite close to the commercial teams who were selling into what were then emerging markets like Czech Republic or Poland. We wanted to make sure we could get paid. And those countries all had sort of hiccups in their performance as they sort of evolved from sort of Soviet satellites towards Western style open economies. And it's, again, was you know, very, we were working very closely with the, the teams that were selling into these, these countries. We manufactured in various European, Western European countries. So we could pick and choose sometimes the agencies we were using to support the trade. So from Denmark or, or France or the UK uh, into these markets. So again, quite a different focus. And uh, it was a business that struggled for cash. So again, very, very targeted on, on making sure our cash forecasts were good and that we knew where the money was. And when you were going into businesses like that yourself, you know, when it was yeah. the treasurer, what appealed to you about that? Surely didn't you just say, ah, it was too much hassle? You know, like, why do I want to go into somewhere like that? Or, you know, let's find someone with a bit of money. So, you know, it's different. <laughs> I think that those are the places you learn most. Right. Um, and actually, you know, some of it is is about who you're working with. And you end up working with some quite interesting people in these sorts of businesses. But because of the breadth of activities within the Treasury Department, you just see a lot, an awful lot more about what, of what's going on. And you, you can make a real difference, not just in the sort of pure Treasury areas of currency hedging or in debt management, but it's very satisfying when you can help somebody deliver a sales contract and, and do a big deal that's going to sort of generate quite a lot of, of top-line income for the company. So from that point of view, and, and then and actually the Treasury gets valued more by colleagues who don't, don't see you just as a sort of another part of the finance team, but as somebody who can actually help them to get their business done. You're closer to it as well. And then, yeah. And then you did that and then sort of a couple of interims, but then this big role at Telewest. Or, you know, talk us through the moves. Then. So Telewest was a, it seems an era ago, but it wasn't, mm. wasn't so many years. But the cable industry in the UK started out with lots of local franchises. Each yeah. local authority put, put plans together with an independent company to basically dig up the streets and lay fiber optic cables. And Telewest started consolidating the local franchises and became one of the the big three in the country. But it had huge capital expenditure because if you're digging lots, digging up streets and laying cables, if you're then providing set-top boxes and all the engine, all those kind of electronics switch gear and things. And it's very interesting to hear the stories of Huawei on, on their 5G at the moment because yeah. the sorts of kit are very similar to the sorts of things that were put in place to mastermind the way that a cable network is operated. So huge amounts of complex electronics, but very, very expensive. And really the the race was to get revenue growth from customers fast enough that we could, could get the cash flows in to, to pay for the capex that had been incurred. Right. And for both Telewest and NTL, we failed to do that. And at the time, Sky was rolling out and they were our main competitor for for digital TV and multi-channel TV. And it's difficult to remember now, but Sky almost went bankrupt yeah. with their digital rollout. And if they had, it would have been a very different story for the cable industry. But Sky sort of made it through um, with 
their sports rights ended up dominating the offering. Whereas the cable industries, it's probably fair to say, were a bit too engineering dominated and a bit less customer yeah. market focused. That changed a bit, but a bit too late. So having the best technology getting to somebody's house is not really a compelling sales pitch, having the best products to the house. Yeah. The irony is that today, the cable networks are, are really, really valuable because that's how high-speed internet is accessed. They're and just that's taken now over. where everyone's TV is. Yeah. So Virgin Media came out of the ashes of the cable industry and I, I think has been a pretty successful business in its, in its new guise. But yeah. we went through a big period of capital expenditure. We raised a lot of money in um, the high-yield bond, bond markets. And then there was a, a credit crunch and we dropped five credit ratings and we were already sub-investment grade, five notches in one day. Oh, and wow. then the game was over. Yeah. When you dropped us down from double B to C, that was that was the time that was the message. It was time time to change. And, yeah. and I remember coming going into the office one, one morning and basically everybody who was in office in the finance team who were in offices along the, the same wall that I was were all called in one after another and, and told that we were going at yeah. various notices. Cost cutting really came the order of the day. But I'd, I'd already started then working with some of the, the bank's distressed debt teams because the banks immediately change. As soon as you get into trouble, they change the relationship managers out. And the guys who live in the dark basements, whose job is to recover the debt, turn up. And, and so I'd started working with some of them. We've been giving them regular, really detailed cash forecasts of what the business was doing. And as I left Telewest, a couple of them came to me and said, look, we've got this business in Germany that we've just taken control of because we've enforced our security. Can you come and give us a hand? Because we need to turn around accountants in there, but we need to actually Have a treasury. focus on the treasury there. Yeah. So I went and joined Ish, which was based in Cologne. I thought that was just going to be a short-term assignment for a few few months, but ended up there for nearly three years. And the, the remit was this business was now owned by the banks. The bondholders had lost everything. It, too, it, it had been spun out from Deutsche Telekom. It had... It spent a huge amount of, of its of capital of capital building out a modern cable network, but failed to make the the impact on customers. And in Germany, customers already had multi-channel TV, so they weren't that bothered about buying even more channels because they yeah. had about twenty to choose from, which was different from the UK. But gradually, we got the high-speed internet product right going. We Start launched, to on. Yeah, yeah. We launched digital TV, and we started by launching it to. Um, ethnic, into ethnic minorities in Germany. So Russian language, Polish, Italian, Spanish, Turkish, because they were underserved by the existing TV channels. So our first 100,000 digital TV customers were mainly focused on minority languages and then gradually got momentum into for digital for the German channels as well. Yeah. But as you say, sort of relating to your earlier example with, yeah. with Telewest, you go into the product rather than the actual physical infrastructure. It was much more, this is what people want to buy and they'll, they'll pay for it. Exactly that. They don't buy a technology, they buy yeah. what travels product. on the technology. Yeah. So you can see that with really successful brands like Apple. Yeah. But having a phone that's that's a nice piece of kit is only half the story. It's really about how they use it and how they Absolutely, capture the ancillary yeah. revenue from that. In Germany too, high-speed internet is really sought after and that's, that was well served by the network that Ish had built up. So I was there for nearly three years. We got the business stabilized. We brought the capital expenditure way, way down, found some smarter technologies for using the old copper networks that we had right. to provide digital services and then found having turned turned it around and started paying down the bank 
sort of interim finance debt that we had, then sold the business. We had a, a false start when the regulators didn't like the first people we were going to sell to, but we ended up selling it to one of the a private equity owner of one of the neighboring regional franchises. And the banks doubled their money over the three years from, from the prices they were shown at the beginning. So it worked out very well and was a, a great sort of experience. I, I commuted back and forward to Germany and I still don't have very much German language, but it was certainly uh, an environment where you really really could make a huge difference. Yeah. And then you came back and did an interim role before then properly getting into Seven Trent. You know, that's, that was yeah. a big role. So talk us through. So Seven Trent, one of the biggest water companies in the UK. The water industry sort of runs in five-year cycles where they but almost when you finish one, you start the next, but the regulatory cycles where the prices are set, the whole business plan and budget and, and plan is agreed with the with the water regulators. But once a new business plan plan is agreed for five years, that sets the revenue line, but it also requires the investment to follow. So at Seven Trent, there was a big capital program. It still spends a lot, all the water sector still spend a huge amount of money. And, and in truth, the reason for privatizing the water sector was that to meet requir- environmental requirements, the water industry in the 1970s and 80s needed a huge amount of money spent on it. And government was never going to do that. So by privatizing, they accessed capital from from the markets. And that continues today. They're all very big borrowers and they've used private shareholder capital to to finance these networks and it runs into tens of billions that have been spent in the sector. So it was about borrowing, it was about getting really efficient sterling capital, capital markets access. We also used programs of swaps to secure interest rates going forward. We issued some of the debt in index-linked inflation for, format because the very long-term growth of the industry was water prices go up by inflation plus or minus a factor. And so there is some linkage there. So quite an unusual market. And I was there through the financial crash and the banking crisis. And it was really interesting. I think I've never written so many board papers in succession as to when the banks were, banking crisis was on. Because you know almost every week we were reviewing the counterpart banks and were we happy that they were still good for us? And could we rely on them for the facilities that they were promising us? Yeah. Did we want to put any of our cash with those banks? And in the end, you kind of got, got we kind of got comfortable that well, you know, RBS has been rescued. The other really big banks in the UK are probably going to be bailed out by the government if they ha- have to be. So they're probably okay. But a number of the other banks, we just said, look, we're not putting any money with them for the time being. We'll we'll just wait and see what happens. Yeah. Um, and in the end, for the banks that we had, it it all turned out turned out well. But you choose your bank group very carefully because when the market turns down, it's not only the money you've got with them, it's the promises that they've made to you that need to be be honoured. Yeah. So uh, again, you have to be, be very focused on what's happening out, outside. So I had nearly seven years at Seven Trent, went through a couple of the cycles and then sort of began to, and I did a lot of work on the pension scheme there as well, because being an ex-public sector organisation, it had a fairly strong pension scheme, a lot of very long-standing employees who were in a defined benefit pension scheme. It had been closed to new entrants several years before. But one of the major things we did just to de-risk the, the business in future was we said, look, we've got to stop this pension scheme. And auto-enrollment came along where the law changed and every employee had to be put into a pension scheme by default. And we realized that of our workforce, half were in the defined benefit scheme, a quarter were in a defined contribution scheme and a quarter were in nothing. They never yeah. bothered to sign up. And we, we just said, look, we've got to spread, we might spend the same budget, but we've got to spread it more equally across the workforce. We've got to get the quarter who aren't in the schemes into a scheme. So we designed a new defined contribution scheme and 
closed the defined benefit scheme for, to further accruals and then agreed a deficit recovery plan as well, which we needed to have get the scheme to a, sol- to a long-term solvent position to de-risk it. So it wasn't a question of having to close it urgently, definitely the right thing to do for the long-term health of the business. Yeah. And you made that transition really from, you mean from these distressed capital intensive businesses, which were a real challenge. And we spoke about this before the show as well. And then suddenly you were starting yeah. to move to these more cash generative, you know, bags of cash businesses in a nice way. And then, you know, to seven trade good steady flows, literally like the water. And then you carried that that on, you know, took us through that next that next. So Urenco is a, a very, very unusual business. It's yeah. owned by three or owned by two governments, the Dutch and the, the British government, also two German power utilities. It it was set up in 1970 by government intergovernmental treaty. Objective was to commercialise the technology for enriching uranium. Clearly, that's very sensitive at one level because it's got weapons potential, and you can see that with what's going on in Iran today. So enriched uranium is is key part of of nuclear fuels. Mm. It's so important that. The governments wanted to make sure that they got fuel for the power stations that they were investing in. Because if you're investing in power stations with a 50 or 60 year life, you need to make sure you can fuel it for that life. So Urenco was born out of that. There are plants in the UK and Holland and Germany. And then in the mid 2000s, they started building a plant in New Mexico in the US because that's the largest nuclear power sector in the world. A large part of our customer base is over there. So we wanted to build a plant nearer to our customers. So there was a very big capital expenditure program that continued in my early years at Urenco. And we went up to about 3.2 billion euros about four or five years ago. And since then, we've actually been spinning off a lot of cash and paying down debt so that at the end of 2018, we were back down to 1.4 4 billion of debt, incredible yeah. rate of cash cash generation. And that will continue for a few years. But we can we know that we're living on contracts that were put in place before the Fukushima incident in Japan. And that incident took out 10% of the nuclear reactor market at a stroke as they closed, ev- closed everything and gradually they're reopening, but it's taking a long time to do that. And if you've got a market that's in balance and you take out that much demand, prices drop. And so yeah. the, the contracts we're signing today are nowhere near as lucrative as the ones we're executing now. Right. So we have a kind of one-time opportunity to to harvest the cash on these valuable contracts. And we're doing that, using that to pay down debt, de-risk the business for the future. By the way, we closed our, our UK UK pension scheme here. We've put the Dutch one into a consolidator. So we're trying to look for areas of future risk that, that we should just manage today to put the company in a good state for the for the long-term future. future. Yeah. And you talked about you talk about that, and you know this is again related to something we talked about throughout your career. You, we joked before. You've had this very you know curious nature. You want to dig into things as well. But then one of the things again we talked. I said to Gerald, we had a, a pre-brief call, and one of the things I said, so what do you see as being key to Treasury? You know, is it all about the money? Is it all about this? And it, you, you said it. You took it outside of that. You said, look, it's all about your relationships. You know, both internal, external making those work can you describe for again because we've got you know listeners yeah. here you know particularly our uk european audience tends to be more junior guys some of them coming up some of the u.s audience a bit more senior and they want to know you know sometimes they ask for war stories they want to know what yeah. the treasurer see as being important what, what do you see as being important i think that one thing is actually move around the companies a bit yeah. because that's where you you learn Lots because the cash the shape of the cash flow is different and you can hear from what i've said that you know we've, i've worked in businesses that are very international i've worked in those that are, are very debt driven worked in those where the backs was to the wall and therefore cash forecasting was 
essential to being able to pay the bills very shortly. And the shape of those different companies dictates how treasuries run. What are the th- what are the things you do, and and therefore you learn more uh, as a treasurer. I think the other th- thing is you know pick good people to work for. I've been lucky. I've I've worked for some very good CFOs along the way in my early career. I worked for some very good treasurers and and treasury managers. Some were probably fair to say were a bit eccentric in in their thinking, but were very, very smart people and well connected into the the companies they worked for. So build your relationships, you know, make sure you work with good people above you and around you and build good relationships with your colleagues in the finance team, the general counsel area, the, the, the legal colleagues, because They'll, you'll need those to help you put documents together. Tax teams, inevitably, because they're often helping to approve doc, approve payments and things, but they're they're also good eyes and ears about what's happening in the business. And how, and so you, and how do you do that? You know, you say build good relationships. Well, just go out to lunch with them, or you know, how how have you elicited that sort of you know getting close? To them? That doesn't hurt, and it's. <laughs> But look for opportunities to work on projects together. Okay. Include them in. If you're if you're looking at doing something, make sure you include those sort of colleague, the right colleagues from those areas, in your planning for treasury activities and things you're going to do. If you start off on on a project without including them, they'll probably derail you later on because they'll they'll think of something that affects them that you yeah. haven't thought about. So you know, work with a, interdisciplinary groups, and we all all sit very very close to these these colleagues and other teams. So, and, and it can be less, informal too, you know, people come to your desk and say, uh, can you just tell me a bit about this letter I got about my pension scheme? Well, yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of getting to know colleagues. And also on the commercial side, because if the commercial teams that are out selling in different places or, or to different types of customers, sometimes there's opportunities to say, look, we can help you. We can put together a trade finance package or have you thought about structuring the payment payment stream you're going to get from that customer to protect the business they're not a very that might not be a very good credit credit rating you're dealing with or it might be coming from a country that's got a poor record of of paying so keeping your ear to the ground with with those guys and they often don't think in terms of treasury things but you can yeah. bring them assistance and you might say well why don't you structure it in a different currency then you'll get it works for them and it'll work for us yeah and sometimes that gives them a bit of an edge when they're negotiating for a contract bring them into the world of treasury and yeah. obviously as, you know as we approach the end of today's episode because we you know we'd like to keep it sort of the you know yeah. what we want to do is sort of try and summarize if you like people look back at your career Joe, and again we'll put your linkedin profile in the show notes people can connect to you there but as you look back through because you've got this you know incredible history where you've gone from you know sort of starting out treasury then distressed companies and more challenging times and now sort of a different sort of side of the fence if you like and you know the money's coming in and things there's that side of things but also just generally looking back over your career what what sort of tips would you give to the you know somebody what are the two or three things that, you know people that should be thinking about again earlier in their careers thinking right this is what you should be doing or thinking about what, what would you say i wouldn't I, I keep going back to it but i don't underestimate the power of cash forecasting so if there's a chance to work on cash forecasts and really get those going well that's a an absolute must grounding for for anybody in treasury. I think take your chances if there's opportunities to work in different areas or different kinds of companies. Sometimes you you'll be surprised. You might end up somewhere you hadn't thought of. And what, particularly when I I had a spell of spells of contracting in the past, there were one or two places I worked where I probably wouldn't want to work long term, but really interesting for just small periods of time to to learn about something different and. An example: I worked for in Lloyd's of London for a few months at the insurance 
industry. A very, very different kind of ethos and, and structure but from anything else I'd, I'd seen. And also, incidentally, the only place where the kind of regulations are signed off by the Queen because everything goes up to the Privy Council for yeah. approval. But probably not an industry that I was destined to spend the rest of my career in, but it, it certainly was an insight into how a very different kind of treasury operation was run. And so, you know, I'd recommend people to to take that opportunity. If you get a chance to be seconded to work in a subsidiary on a project somewhere, take that too, because it'll get you closer to some of the commercial activities going on in the business. I've found things like pensions to be fascinating and it puts you on the other side of the table. So as my day job has been issuing bonds, I then go to a pension trustee meeting and we talk to the fund managers who are the people who invest in those bonds. And you get both sides of the, of the perspective of the of the market that you're trying to raise money in. So there's no sort of one formula. And then it, I know a lot of people these days have the ACT qualification. I don't, but I have a, a chartered accountancy qualification. When I started, it was probably fair to say ACT wasn't a wasn't essential. No, it wasn't. But I think that's a really good grounding for many people. And I encourage the teams I've had working for me, the people to to get the ACT qualification. It, it shows that you're serious about Treasury. And I think they provide some very, very good grounding in, through their, their education. Yeah, really help. Gerard, brilliant show. Thank you very much for your time today. As I say, we'll put your link to you in the show notes and we will perhaps connect. And uh, yeah, thank you for um, surviving, you know, getting through all those <laughs> tough times and, uh, you know, now in a you know, really, you know, company which is, yeah, sounds like going from strength to strength and uh, long may it continue, sir. Thanks for your time today. Great. Well, it's a, ple- a pleasure, Mike. And we've worked together over a number of years. And yeah. I know you've provided me with quite a few of the colleagues who've made all this possible. So yes. thank you very much. And we'll keep doing it. We'll keep doing it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for your time.